good evening. We're here once again through going through systematic theology. We're up to session number 39. And what we're looking at in this portion of systematic theology is redemption. What is redemption? It's God acting to choose a people for himself out of the fallen race of humans, then accomplishing the work necessary to save them from sin. Redemption can be divided into two major categories. First of all, God's work in accomplishing redemption, then God's work in applying redemption. Now, the work of accomplishing redemption, that's been completed in the obedience of Christ in his sinless earthly walk and the obedience of Christ in his work of suffering and dying on the cross and in the resurrection of Christ. The work of actually applying redemption to individuals, that's going on today. And that divine work of applying redemption is the part that we're looking at now. Now, in previous sessions, we looked at what theologians call the ordo salutis, the ordo salutis. And that's just a fancy Latin phrase for the order of salvation. The ordo is a way of saying that while all the benefits of salvation come to us as a package, the benefits are applied in a certain order. Most of these benefits are applied to us at the same moment of time when we're first saved. But even though they may happen at the same instant, there's a logical order to how, they're, to how it progresses and how they're applied to us. Now, different theologians do differ slightly on how they list the order, but the way I'm presenting this order is the way that the modern theologian Robert Raymond has ordered it. It's in your notes this evening. And the only thing I added to Robert Raymond's list is what you see in your notes is step zero, which is divine election. And just to go over that again, Step zero being election. We've covered that previously. And then effectual call, regeneration, repentance unto life, faith in Jesus Christ, justification, definitive sanctification, adoption, progressive sanctification, and then finally perseverance in holiness. And we covered divine election back in session number 37. The doctrine of divine election is at God. Before he created the worlds, chose a people for himself. He elected the exact number of these peoples. He elected the exact individuals by name. The number of God's elect, which he determined before creation, it can't be increased or decreased. The list of the elect, it's part of God's secret knowledge. We're not privy to that. We can't inquire into it. We preach the gospel to all. But God applies the gospel in a saving way only to the elect. In the last session, we began looking at the call of God, the call of God. We saw that there was a general universal call of God in the preaching of the gospel. And we hold out the gospel as a royal announcement of the grace available in Christ in his finished work. It's good news indeed. But the universal call of the preaching of the gospel doesn't save all by itself. Why? Because if it did, everyone who ever heard the gospel would be saved. Another call is needed in addition to the gospel for someone to be saved. And this additional call is only given by God to the elect. And that call is what we're going to look at tonight. And that call is known as the effectual call. Where we're going to be first is in Matthew chapter 22. We'll look at one of Jesus' parables there, Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. And I won't read the entire parable, but I'll give a summary of it. This is the parable of the wedding feast. And Jesus finishes the parable by stating the point of the parable. The parable, 
is that a king gave a wedding feast for his son. The king sent his servants to call those who had been invited to the feast. The feast is now ready. The announcement of the feast had gone forth from the king previously, but now the final invitation is going forth. Now is the time to come to the feast. Those who were previously invited looked with contempt on the invitation, and they made excuses and even killed the servants making the announcement. Now the invitation goes beyond those originally invited and goes to the general population. In response to the gen in response to this general uh, this invitation to the general population, many do come, but there's one who refuses to wear the wedding garment provided by the host. That person is cast into outer darkness. Now the parable, it's a layered parable. Several things are being taught here, but at the end, Jesus gives the major point. Matthew twenty two fourteen. For many are called, but few are chosen. For many are called, but few are chosen. There's a general gospel call has gone out to the entire population. The church is commanded in what's called the Great Commission to bring the gospel to the entire world. The gospel is simply this royal announcement of the finished work of Christ and the fact that the grace of forgiveness of sins is available to all who believe. And as Jesus said in verse 14, many are called. The gospel has gone out to all where the gospel is preached. But there's a difference between the many who receive this general call and the few who are chosen. The first group of invitees, they disregard the summons altogether. And they show their contempt for the king and for the king's son and the invitation itself. Of those who are invited, next as part of the general invitation, many come, but there's an example of one who disregards the command to wear the garment provided for him. This person is an example of a hypocrite in the church. So, in the spread of the call of God in the world, there's a weeding process going on. Most who hear the general universal call of the gospel reject it, and they have contempt for it. Of those who enter what can be called the visible church, what we can see, the church as we see it, there will be a mixture of those who truly belong to Christ and those who are hypocrites. And some of those hypocrites will be well hidden. Another passage that shows the difference between the general call of the gospel that goes out to the whole world and the specific choosing and the additional calling of the elect, a calling that cannot fail, is in the book of Revelation, which is where we'll be next. If you'd like to follow along, I'll be in Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. Now here, the vision given to John guarantees the triumph of Christ. Out of this vision is a description of those who are true Christians, those who are with Christ. Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Called and chosen and faithful. Vision given to John identifies those who belong to Christ in three ways. They are called, chosen, and faithful. And these three identifying marks 
describe our Christian lives. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. We were selected by God out of the larger group of humanity. At the time that redemption was applied to us, we were called by God. This isn't the only the, just the general call of the gospel, but it, that general call of the gospel was coupled with a specific internal call that resulted in our salvation. And then finally, as a result of us being chosen, then called, we will be faithful. In God's grace, he will cause us to persevere in the faith. This call that results in us being ushered into salvation has a name. It is the effectual call. It's called effectual because when God calls an elect person with the effectual call, it is absolutely effective. This call inevitably results in all those next steps in the ordo salutis that you see. The effectual call has three qualities associated with it. First, the effectual call is internal rather than external. And second, as the name implies, it is effective and it cannot fail to usher us into salvation. The effectual call will inevitably result in the rest of the ordo salutis. Third, this effectual call is immutable. The call can't change. God will not change his mind or relent on this effectual call. Once an elect person is called by God with the effectual call, that elect person will receive the rest of the ordo salutis or the order of salvation. And that includes the grace of persevering to the end. Now we're going to look at each of, those, of these three qualities of the effectual call. First, the effectual call is internal rather than external. The external call of the announced gospel is preliminary to the internal effectual call. The gospel, when it's announced, is preparation for the internal call that results in believing the gospel. The external call of the gospel, that doesn't result in the salvation of everyone who hears it. But when the Holy Spirit applies salvation to one of the elect, the external announcement of the gospel is linked to the internal call, the effectual call. The effectual internal call to salvation, it does not come apart from the gospel. In an elect person, at the moment of salvation, those two calls are linked together. I like how the theologian Burkhoff phrases it. He said, through the powerful application of the Holy Spirit, the external call passes right into the internal. The external call of the announcement of the gospel will not save without this internal effectual call. But it's also important to realize that this internal call is not disconnected from the announcement of the gospel. It might be tempting to think that people who die never having heard the gospel will somehow receive in this internal effectual call and be saved by, well, they'll just live their lives as best they can according to the light that they have. The Westminster Confession of Faith denies this when it says, much less can men not professing the Christian religion be saved in any other way whatsoever, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the laws of that religion they do profess. 
and to assert and maintain that they may is very pernicious and to be detested. In other words, to think that we can decouple the internal effectual call from the external call of the gospel is just wrong. The two go absolutely together. This internal effectual call at the moment of salvation is coupled with the external announcement of the gospel. The internal call does not ordinarily come by itself. Saving faith must have an object. You've got to believe in something when you have faith. It has to have an object. What we have faith in in order to be saved is Christ. And that message about Christ is the gospel. Next, we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 4. And here in Acts, chapter 4, Peter had, in the name of Jesus, healed a man lame from birth. And after that, Peter presented the gospel to the crowds who had seen this miracle. The religious authorities arrested Peter and John, and Peter gave testimony to them that it was in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that the miracle was done. Then, Peter gives the powerful statement in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And that's what we're going to look at now, Acts 4, 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It might be tempting to think that people in areas where the gospel has not been preached can receive the effectual call by some other means, other than the gospel, other than the name of Christ. But there is no other name where salvation is possible. If people in other lands could be saved by just being sincere with some other religion, then what Peter proclaimed to the religious authorities on that day would not be true. The internal Effectual call of God on a person does not ordinarily happen disconnected from the external call of the gospel. There are many who have died without hearing the gospel. But God has decreed that the spread of the gospel is going to happen in such a way that the elect, Christ's sheep, will hear the gospel. Now, a minute ago, you may have picked up on a word that I used when I said that the internal call is coupled to the external gospel call. That word was ordinarily. This is because there are people who die in a condition where they could not possibly understand the gospel. And those groups of people are infants who die in infancy and those who suffer from such a severe mental disorder that they cannot understand the gospel. The Westminster Confession of Faith points to these groups as an exception. And here's what the confession says. It says, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the spirit who works when and where and how he pleases. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. How the Holy Spirit works is a matter beyond our understanding. We can't go beyond what scripture tells us. It brings to mind what Jesus said to Nicodemus about the new birth. In John 3, 8, he said, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
The Westminster Confession of Faith affirms that there are two exceptions where salvation is not necessarily coupled with the gospel announcement and the understanding of the gospel. And those are the two exceptions where understanding is not possible. But the Westminster Confession doesn't speculate beyond this. It refers to elect infants and doesn't state which infants who die in infancy are elect, whether it's some of them or all of them. Doesn't speculate. I am going to give you my belief, and I think it's probably the belief that you hold as well. I believe that all infants who die in infancy and all those who die incapable of understanding the gospel due to mental infirmity are elect. I believe that the Holy Spirit is capable of giving them the new birth, though we don't understand how. I believe that if you, as a Christian, have lost an infant, you will see your child in eternity. And I like how Spurgeon spoke of this. And I'm going to give you a rather long quotation from one of his sermons. And I tried to shorten the quotation, but I think it's so powerful that we need to hear it all. He said, Among the crass falsehoods which have been uttered against the Calvinists proper, it is the wicked falsehood that we hold the damnation of little infants. A baser lie was never uttered. There may have existed somewhere in some corner of the earth a miscreant who would dare to say that there were infants in hell, but I have never met with him, nor have I ever met with a man who ever saw such a person. We say, with regard to infants, Scripture saith but very little, and therefore, where Scripture is confessedly scant, it is for no man to determine dogmatically, but... I think I speak for the entire body, or certainly with exceedingly few exceptions, and those unknown to me, when I say that we hold that all infants are elect of God and are therefore saved, and we look to this as being the means by which Christ shall see of the travail of his soul to a great degree. And we do sometimes hope that thus the multitude of the saved shall be made to exceed the multitude of the lost. Whatever views our friends may hold upon the point, they are not necessarily convicted with Calvinistic doctrine. I believe that the Lord Jesus, who said, of such is the kingdom of heaven, doth daily, constantly receive into his loving arms those tender ones who are only shown and then snatched away to heaven. As Spurgeon said here, there's no chapter and verse that tells us these exceptions. But I, along with Spurgeon, base it on the character of God. I look at Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, when Abraham was interceding for the city of Sodom, when Abraham said to the Lord, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? What I'm looking to hear, <clears throat> to hear is the statement, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's why I hold to these two exceptions, to the coupling of salvation with receiving and understanding the gospel. But other than that, <clears throat> the internal call is tied to the external call. It's coupled with the external call of the announced gospel. That was the first aspect of the effectual call. It is an internal call given by God to the elect person at the moment of the application of redemption. It is different from the external call of the gospel, but 
in the elect. The internal call is tied to the external call. And ordinarily, the internal call, the effectual call, doesn't happen without the external call of the gospel. They're coupled together. The second aspect of the effectual call is, as the name says, it's absolutely effective. Absolutely effective. It is a powerful calling. The effectual call is an inward call, but it is an inward call to believe the gospel. John Murray, when he wrote of the effectual call, preferred speaking of this call as a summons. A summons. When do most of us have a reason to use the word summons? Usually when we get that wonderful official envelope in the mail from the county court ordering us to show up for jury duty. It's a jury duty summons. A jury duty summons isn't asking us to volunteer for jury duty. We have to show up. And the county has the power to compel us to comply. If we don't answer the summons, they may send law enforcement to make their point that a summons is not optional. The term summons emphasizes that this call cannot be resisted. The summons that we're talking about here, the effectual call, comes with the power from God to make the summons irresistible. When the day comes for one of God's elect to have salvation applied to them, God will issue the summons. This summons, this effectual call, will inevitably and irresistibly lead the elect person to the rest of the order of salvation that we've been talking about. The summons, the effectual call, will irresistibly lead to the elect person believing the gospel with saving faith and being saved. Now next, if you'd like to follow along, it will be in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Now this passage is in a section where Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch preaching the gospel, and much of the city turned out to hear them. But there were unbelieving Jews who argued against them and began to slander them. Paul and Barnabas responded by telling them that the gospel had to be preached to the Jews first. But since they were rejecting it, they would now go to the Gentiles. And this is where we pick up in verse 48. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God had appointed or elected in eternity past those who would believe. Once these elected people heard the gospel, the outward call, God then at this point gave them the inward call. The, the result was they believed. The fact that God appointed them to eternal life, the fact that God elected them, led to a course that resulted in them believing the gospel. The appointment or election led to the outward call of the gospel being joined to the inward effective call, and they believed. And the next passage I'll read from, from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 44. This is the passage where Jesus proclaims to the crowds that he is the bread of life. John 6, 44. No one 
can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So this passage pictures the whole human race in a state of hopelessness. They need to come to the one who can save them. But Jesus says, no one can come to me. Despite our great need, we are incapable of coming to Christ under our own power. Remember that letter T in the acronym TULIP, total depravity that we've studied in the past? There's nothing in us that will enable us to flee to the Savior by our own inner desire, the state in which we're born. But then Jesus goes on with one word that makes all the difference. That one word divides the whole human race between the saved and the lost. That one word that Jesus uses is unless. Unless. This unless is the action of the Father in drawing the lost person to Christ. The Greek word translated here as draws means that someone is dragging something from one place to another. The thing being dragged has no power to go by itself, and it's not going to go voluntarily. The one doing the dragging is the only one doing the work. Without the effectual call, people born in sin will never come to Christ voluntarily. The inward effectual call is needed to cause the elect to respond to the outward call of the gospel and believe the gospel. And where I'll be next is in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In his introduction to his letter, Peter declares certain actions that God has done in these saved people hearing his letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And here in 1 Peter, Peter is addressing, as verse 1 says, elect persons. Verse 2 goes on and tells them the basis of their election. They are elected because God knew them by name before the foundation of the world. Then Peter tells them what their election is sure to accomplish without a doubt. Their election will result in their being obedient to the gospel by believing. Their election will result in gradual progression of holiness throughout the Christian life. Their election will result in forgiveness of sins by being sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Their election most assuredly bring these, brings these things. There is no doubt. Chance, if there were such a thing as chance, has no role in this. The will of sinful man will not stand in the way. When the effectual call comes to an elect person, that call is a summons, and it comes with the power for us to answer the summons. You know, we should also notice here that in, in 1 Peter that Peter clearly states this work is a work of the three persons of the Trinity. The Father elects those who will be given to the Son as his bride. 
his sheep. The Holy Spirit is carrying out the work of sanctifying us, making us gradually more holy and Christ-like. The Son, Christ, sprinkles us with his blood, cleansing us from our sins. The whole Trinity involved. In previous sessions, we looked at what are commonly called the five points of Calvinism, which can be remembered with that acronym TULIP. Each letter in the word TULIP reminds us of how God works to choose and secure people for himself out of this mass of sinful humanity. The letters of TULIP stand for these principles. T is for total depravity. Now, total depravity, as you might remember, it doesn't mean that man is as evil as he could possibly be. You know, as sinful as we see society getting right now, as bad as things are today, I'm sure we can imagine things getting even worse. God, in what we call common grace, preserves society by keeping mankind from becoming as evil as he could possibly be. But total depravity means that we have no good that merits salvation from our sins. In our natural sinful state, we can do nothing to contribute to salvation. If we are to be saved, God must do the work. Then the next letter, U, it's for unconditional election. Unconditional election. The unconditional part means there's no if-then conditions to God's election of individuals. In eternity past, God selected a certain number of people for salvation, and he selected them by name. The number of the elect can't be increased or diminished. Now, who is elect? That's part of the secret knowledge of God. So we offer the gospel to everyone, and we don't know who is elect. God's election of individuals in eternity past, it was not conditioned on anything he foresaw in anyone that would make them somehow more worthy than anyone else. It's an expression of his grace, which he bestows in a sovereign manner. In other words, he bestowed his grace and election as he was pleased to do without being conditioned by anything in us. If you accept that T part of TULIP, total depravity, then you also have to accept the U part, unconditional election. If mankind is totally depraved, if in our sinfulness we can't come to God or contribute to our salvation, and God must do the work, then God had to unconditionally elect those who he would save. L, the next letter, L, is for limited atonement. And we covered, a limited, we covered that, that subject, limited atonement, back in session 34. Limited atonement means that Christ went to the cross specifically for the elect, those individuals who the Father gave to the Son. And now in this session, we come to the letter I in TULIP. The letter I stands for irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. The scriptures call the gospel the power of God for salvation. But the power of the gospel is only unleashed when coupled with saving faith in the person who hears the gospel. The gospel can be resisted by sinful man, and most people who hear the gospel do resist it to the end. But when God applies the effectual call to one of his elect, one of his people that he chose for himself in eternity past, that call is irresistible. 
At the moment of salvation, the person being saved cannot resist God's grace. That person cannot resist the effectual call. This call rises above physical or moral persuasion. You know, if the effectual call relied on persuasion, then we could just easily be persuaded the other way later on. God can and does elect some to come into the kingdom, and he can and does choose to pass by the remainder, leaving them in spiritual darkness. For one place where scripture tells us this, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Read verses 10 to 14. Oh, not chapter 1, excuse me. Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Read verses 10 to 14. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. Jesus said that one of the purposes of his parables was kind of a, a spiritual sieve, so to speak. Now, if you use a sieve when you're cooking, you know that it's used to keep certain things from a mixture that you want and to strain out the rest of the mixture that you're not going to keep. The parables divided one group of people from another. The reaction of people to the parables reveals what God already determined for them in eternity past. Most of the people were people who God had not elected. Jesus said to the disciples, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus also said about those who are not elect, but to them it has not been given. Jesus goes on to emphasize this division by quoting from Isaiah. And his quotation is given to us using a construction in the Greek language called an emphatic negative. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. And in the Greek, the emphatic negative can be expressed like this. You will indeed hear, but never, ever understand. And you will indeed see, but never, ever perceive. Left to ourselves in the state in which we were born, total depravity, unable to contribute to salvation, being enemies of God, we would never be persuaded by the gospel alone. If anyone is to be saved, irresistible grace is necessary. Irresistible grace, it shows up in our list of the Ordo Salutis as the effectual call, then regeneration or the new birth. And these are the actions of God alone at the moment that redemption is applied. The five points of Calvinism were declared by the reformers at the Synod of Dort to counter five points that have been declared by the Arminians. It shouldn't surprise us that Arminians deny irresistible grace. They deny that a person's will is changed by an act of God at the new birth. 
Instead, they claim that the Holy Spirit uses moral persuasion on the unsaved. The Arminians hold that God's calling on someone is a kind of wooing, and that that wooing can be resisted and rejected or accepted, and it depends on the person. In churches that hold to Arminianism, at moments when they invite people to come to Christ, they will often say, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman, and he will not impose the will of God on you. But if this call of God is a gentle wooing on a soul that is unchanged, and an inner moral persuading, if, if that's all that's needed, then later on a person could also walk away from Christ. That persuasion could be undone by a persuading from the world. And in churches that teach this, that's exactly what they believe. You can walk away from Christ. You can be saved one day and unsaved the next. But the truth is, because of total depravity, no amount of moral persuasion by itself will bring us to salvation. A total renovation is required. Reminds me of those old extreme home makeover shows on TV where the house is in such bad shape that nothing can be done except tear it to the ground and pour a new foundation and build a new house from the ground up. No amount of wooing can change the will of a person born in a state of sin and death. The Westminster Confession of Faith tells us of the fact that a person who is effectually called, is called of both the Word and the Spirit. The Word and the Spirit. The announced gospel is necessary, and the work of the Holy Spirit is necessary. The confession goes on to say that the elect are called out of a state of sin and death to grace and salvation. And they're made to be able to understand the things of God. They're Hearts of stone are replaced by hearts of flesh, and their very wills are renewed. They are determined by God's power to that which is good. Once the effectual call is granted, that person comes most freely because they've been made willing by God's grace. From our standpoint, when we were saved, we saw ourselves being willing to respond. But by means of the effectual call, our wills were changed. It's completely by God's free grace. This is not a grace that is given to all of mankind. It's not what we covered in previous studies when we looked at common grace, which is given to all. This is a matter of special grace. Grace given to the elect and the elect only. Now we get to the third aspect of the effectual call. And that is a call that is not subject to change. It's not subject to change. God never withdraws the effectual call. I'll read from Romans chapter 11, verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When God summons one of his elect to salvation, he never withdraws the summons. This summons is issued with divine power. It is not dependent on whether I'll be naturally receptive. If it depended on whether sinful man would be naturally receptive, no one would be saved. But could God issue this powerful divine call and then change his mind later? God cannot change his mind on his own gifts and calling because God is faithful. Now, if you'd like to follow along, I'll read from 2 Corinthians 
chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. In this passage, Paul is defending himself from charges that he wasn't sincere when he said he was going to go visit Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. This passage shows the difference between the quality of faithfulness and the lack of that quality. Lack of faithfulness is, as Paul said in verse 17, according to the flesh. An unfaithful person will uphold their word only when it's convenient. This lack of faithfulness is a mark of sinful flesh. It results in yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. Now, you've heard of the phrase of someone speaking out of both sides of their mouth. It means that you're trying to please everyone, or at least everyone who matters to you by saying whatever it takes, even contradictory statements. Yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. Paul goes on to say that he is not coming immediately to Corinth. It wasn't due to unfaithfulness, but because of the situation that had developed in Corinth. Paul didn't want to make another painful visit. But Paul uses this section to tell us about the faithfulness of God. Let's back up a few verses and read verses 8 and 9. 1 Corinthians 1.8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 8, where Paul says, who will sustain you to the end? The New American Standard translates it as, who will also confirm you to the end? When God calls, he confirms. God is not yes, yes, then no, no. When God calls with the effectual call, he confirms. The effectual call from God is not something that's effectual today, but in doubt tomorrow. It is beyond doubt. There's another reason why the effectual call can't be granted by God today, but changed a month from now. is because the effectual call of God is the result of God's eternal purpose. And his eternal purpose does not change. If you'd like to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, I'll read verses 8 and 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
Here in this passage, 2 Timothy, Paul makes his point by referring to two things. First, Paul refers to one who issues the effectual call. It is God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Then Paul refers to God's purpose for calling us because of his own purpose and grace. You know, there's projects in my own life that I've purposed to not just start, but also finish. Some I finished, some I didn't. I had a purpose, but my purpose changed. Why can a person's purpose change? Maybe they found out that their purpose was misguided and needed a course correction. Maybe they found that their purpose to be so misguided they had to abandon their purpose altogether. Maybe they didn't count the cost and found they didn't have the resources to complete their purpose. Maybe they found that their purpose wasn't worth the effort after all. Or maybe a person just changes over time and their purpose has changed too. Does God ever change in his purposes? No. God never sets out on a project that he doesn't finish on time according to his timetable and with the result that he decrees. Since God has all knowledge, nothing about his project ever catches him by surprise. Since God has all power, he never runs into a difficulty that would cause him to change his purpose. Since God has all wisdom, his purpose is never misguided. God's purpose is eternal and does not change. The reason why God's calling, his effectual call, cannot change is that his purpose cannot change. His purpose cannot change because God is immutable. If you've been with the study for a while, we covered God's immutability back in session number eight, way back when. Immutability means that God does not change. He's incapable of change. Because God cannot change, his purpose cannot change. We can go next to Ephesians chapter 3 to see that God's purpose is fixed. God decreed his purpose before the ages and it can never change. I'll be in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 7 to 13. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart, over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul here describes the sweeping plan of God, which was there in the Old Testament as a mystery in types and shadows and is now revealed. Paul could now preach this mystery of the gospel, which he describes as God's manifold wisdom. Then Paul says something about God's plan being unchangeable and unstoppable. In verse 11, Paul calls all of this the eternal purpose 
that God has realized in Christ Jesus, the eternal purpose. The work of Christ, the way of salvation, the message of the gospel, the application of redemption to the elect, all of this is God's purpose, and that purpose is eternal. God decreed it before the worlds were made. His purpose is eternal, so nothing in time can change it. God's eternal purpose spans the ages and governs what will happen throughout the ages. The effectual call that God placed in you, bringing you to salvation by believing the gospel, God will never change that effectual call. The call that brought you from being at enmity with God to being one of Christ's sheep, that can never change. The application of the effectual call is part of God's eternal purpose, and it will never change. In that passage we read a couple of minutes ago in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul reminded Timothy that the calling of God is associated with God's own purpose. If my calling were just self-generated, then that purpose would be my own purpose. My own purpose would change over time. My calling would never be sure, because my purpose is never sure. But God never changes, and his purpose is sure and steady through the ages. The canons of the Synod of Dort, which was that great reformed assembly that countered the errors of the Arminians, said this about the unchangeable nature of God's decree. They said, And as God himself is most wise, unchangeable, omniscient, and omnipotent, so the election made by him can neither be interrupted nor changed, recalled or annulled. Neither can the elect be cast away nor their number diminished. As they wrote, the elect cannot be cast away. This relies on what we've already studied about the nature of God in our previous sessions. God is all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, and cannot change. Since all these things are true of God's nature, the effectual call of God cannot change. Now, all of us who are saved, who've had this effectual call in our lives, when hearing about all this, they might, you know, we might think, wait a minute, I don't remember being dragged against my will into faith. If I was unable by my will to come to faith, suddenly the effectual call changed everything, then, then did my will change? The answer is yes. When you receive the effectual call, the call that cannot be resisted, God changed your will. If you look again at your notes, in the step of the ordo salutis, you'll see that the effectual step, step 1A, is right next to the next step. Regeneration, step 1b. Regeneration is another word for being born again. Being born again. The reason why the effectual call and the new birth are 1a and 1b is like this because they're associated with each other. They are two sides of the same coin, so to speak. What makes the effectual call truly effectual is that we are born again at the same time and our will is changed so that we will most definitely respond to that summons. But we're out of time tonight to go any further. But the next time, we're going to look at the new birth or regeneration, why regeneration makes all the difference and why that 
is the entry point to this new life that we have as Christians. Let's